And Father, we ask this morning that you would strengthen us as we turn to your word. As Father, as we are very much aware that uh, not only are those in times of great need in need of you, but Father, we are always in need of you. And we need our minds and our hearts challenged. We need them to be changed by your word. Now, Father, we may have a better and a more comprehensive and mature understanding of life and the world in which we live in. And Father, we ask this morning that you would grant us that as we continue to labor in your word. We thank you for it, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Again, it reads this way, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and, wisdom, and the wisdom of God, because, of the foolishness, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Again, what we've been doing over the last several weeks is looking at uh, primarily verse 19, and the goal of this is to try to understand a couple of things. Number one, why is the message of the cross foolishness to those who are perishing? And part of that is because of man's stance, his his rebellion. And we want to make sure we understand that in greater detail. So when you look at verse 19, where it says, It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. What is being said there? I want to make sure that we really grasp and understand this statement. Because sometimes I think we we can, without really trying to, we can do a disservice to God and to the Word of God. Back in the 90s, I know this is a long time ago, uh, I was teaching a Sunday school class, and the class that I was teaching at, at this particular time, I was teaching to a bunch of high school students. Most of them went to a Christian school. A large number of them came from Christian families. And I don't remember the topic we were on, but as we were working our way through the scripture, I was asking them questions. And on this one particular uh, question, this one young man very rapidly raised his hand and wished that he hadn't because he was the only one who raised his hand. And so I called upon him. Because uh, the question was a little one that was fairly difficult. And so without really hearing the question, he raised his hand. So I called on him and I, and I said, well, so, so uh, what's the answer? And he said, well, I really have no idea, but somehow the answer is Jesus. And so I think too often what happens is, is when you come across verse 19, if someone was to say, so how is it that God destroys the wisdom of the wise? What does that mean? How, how does he bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent? And sometimes what, we'll, what we're thinking anyway is, well, I don't really know, but I know somehow God does that. Somehow it's Jesus and the gospel, and somehow that's part of the answer. And I want to make sure that we really are grasping what's, what's going on here so that we can, ha- so that we can be better equipped uh, to talk to, the, to those who are non-believers, so we can have a better understanding of the world around us, and what's really going on in the lives of those that we know that are non-believers. Now, we're going to go through a lot of these kinds of things today. But part of what we've mentioned before is that when it comes to understanding everything, when it comes to literally all knowledge, not just spiritual knowledge, all knowledge, 
The individual who claims to know anything, whether they are a scientist or a mathematician, it doesn't matter if that person is an atheist or a Christian. For them to claim that they know anything, they have to assume the reality of the God of the Bible. Now, they may not always be fully aware of that, but in the same time, they are aware of that. And that's what we've been looking at over the past several weeks, and we're going to look at that again. Let me give you, the, let me uh, kind of read this statement to you. Sometimes, as individuals talk about things, as they talk about religion, or as they talk about philosophy of life, as they talk about how people are living their lives and the kinds of opinions they have, sometimes an individual will say, and oftentimes it may be directed towards a believer, a Christian, but not always, but they'll say something like this Well, you know that you really shouldn't push your views on others. And so we should ask the question, are you pushing that view on me? In other words, when they make that statement, they're making a universal statement. They may not be aware of it, but they are making a statement that they are now claiming is universally true. And by asking them one question, you basically show that what they've just said has now been refuted. It's a self-refuting statement. It cannot be true. And so therefore it's false. And that's important. I wasn't going to really get into this. I'll just kind of say this real quickly. But when it comes to uh, dealing with non-believers, sometimes this happens a great deal. And let's say the scenario is simply this. Let's say you talk to a person and they say that they do not believe that God exists. We oftentimes will, if if we're familiar with maybe any of the arguments or any of the illustrations that we believe will prove that God exists, we might say, well, can I... Can I share a story with you or can I, can I present to you something that I've learned that, that I think proves that God exists? And the individual may say yes or no, it doesn't really matter. But when we do that, this is what we are doing. And I don't think we're doing this intentionally, but we're doing this. What we're doing is, is we're saying, look, I'm going to present evidence that God exists. You are the judge and I'm going to let you judge for yourself. Which really what we're doing there is we are then basically taking a non-believer and we're placing them above God and saying, here is the evidence for God. I want you to evaluate whether or not this is true, whether or not he uh, he exists. And I don't think that's the right approach. When we talk about the evidence for the existence of God, which I believe there's a great deal of it, that's very encouraging to believers. But normally... In fact, I, I was watching a show once. This guy uh, spends a lot of time talking to people on the street, and he, and he was asking a series of questions, and he, he began to kind of compile some of his, uh, the statistics of answers he's received. And one of, the, one of the questions he would ask individuals, and that's this, if I could prove to you that God exists, would you worship him? And most say no. So you just need to understand that you could be wasting your time trying to prove to them that God exists. So we need to go back to and try to really grasp what is he talking about here, and then how can we use this not only for our own lives, and in, in maybe I, I think uh, what it should do is, is, again, all these things I think should encourage us to have a great sense of certainty that what we believe is absolutely true, but maybe also help us in discussing these things with non-believers. Again, as God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom, or the world through its own wisdom, did not know God, and has not God made foolish 
the wisdom of the world. Remember that the individual who says that you should not push your views on others is echoing what they believe is the wisdom of the world. And they believe it's wise. They believe that that's competent. They believe it's the loving, kind, peaceful thing or stance to take. But it's just foolishness. It's none of those things. So you may have heard this term before if you've ever listened to Robbie Zacharias or you've listened to R.C. Sproul. Some of you might be familiar with individuals like John Gerstner, um, Cornelius Van Til, or Francis Schaeffer. You will have heard this phrase, and it's an important one, and it is uh, where we're talking about the law of non-contradiction. Now, that's not some big fancy word that you don't need to know anything about. You need to know a lot about it. In fact, John Gerstner said that the law of non-contradiction is the foundation upon which all rationality is established. Now, keep in mind, because we don't always think this way, keep in mind that when it comes to, for example, logic, and we all use logic. Every day we use logic. When, we, when you correct your children, you're using logical arguments as to why they should or should not do certain things. So when we talk about logic, we're not always talking about what takes place in philosophy class in some university. It's what we engage in and how we talk to each other all the time. In fact, if we did not converse logically, we would not be able to understand each other very well, and we certainly would not be able to accomplish anything together or alone. So it's not just some fancy idea when we're talking about logic and the importance of logic. But the law of non-contradiction is a law that states that something cannot be both true and not true at the same time when dealing with the same context. Very simple. So this pulpit cannot be made out of wood and not made out of wood at the same time. That's very simple. Everybody knows that. This pulpit is made out of wood. So if, so, and if I was to say later that this pulpit is made out of metal, you would say, well, well, which is it? Is it metal that's painted to look like wood or is it made out of wood? And then, of course, someone else may come along and go, well, actually, it's plastic. It's not plastic. It's made out of wood. But the point is, that's the law of non-contradiction. It's very simple. We actually use it all the time. Uh, in, in forming our opinion uh, uh, to evaluate what somebody has said, or maybe on what we have said. Is, is we, you know, like, you know, if you ask your son, did he do his homework? Uh, yes. No. Well, which is it, son? Well, kind of. No. Your homework being finished is kind of like when your mom was pregnant. Either you are or you are not. There's no kind of. Right? That you're, you're basically using the law of non-contradiction to reason through that short little scenario there. John Frame said this, So the obedient believer is one who considers the word of God as the surest truth he knows. This is his presupposition. The unbeliever is one who rejects this presupposition. The commitment of his heart is to oppose God. And so he seeks to escape his responsibility to obey any scriptural law, including norms of knowledge. But he cannot succeed. Indeed, he cannot even attack the law without assuming its truth. And thus his thinking is muddled. So basically what we're talking about here, which I gave you an example of earlier, is, is again self-refuting statements. A self-refuting statement fails to satisfy its own premise. And because of that, it's necessarily false. There was a, a philosopher, dead, uh, named Friedrich Nietzsche, uh, and he said this. He said, there are many kinds of eyes, thus there are many kinds of truths, hence there is no truth. 
Now, when he says there are many kinds of eyes, what he's talking about there is he says there's many kinds of perspectives. This is a very common thing, a very common view that people have, is that because there are many perspectives, because everybody has their own perspective or there are many perspectives out there, that as a result of that then, there are many truths. And of course, some have, as they thought about that, said, well, actually, if you're, because since truth would have to be absolute to be true, then there are no truths. If everyone's perspective is somehow right, or if all these perspectives represent someone's view of truth, then there's no real truth there. Someone said this, there are many perspectives, thus many, many truths, thus no, thus no truth. Because different people have different styles of survival and health, which arise from their various subjective aesthetic values or taste, coupled with the exercise of their will to power, the result is a plurality of perspectives, but no truth. Whatever interpretation serves one's aesthetic interest in the project of affirming and enhancing one's life is the way to go. Of course, that's what Nietzsche would have us to think. Marcus Aurelius said this once, Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not the truth. So I want to take the last thing that that Frederick Nietzsche said when he said there is no truth. When someone makes that statement, there is no truth, the question is, Is that true? If it's true, then it's false. If it's a false statement, then it's false. Thus, it cannot be true. So you see, it's very simple. You don't have to go through 25 arguments for God because all the individuals say, well, all I know is there's no truth. Is that true? How do you you know that's true? In other words, it refutes itself immediately. Some people will say this, and this is a very common thing that we hear a lot in our society. Some, think, some people will say that everything is relative. Well, if that's true, then that statement is relative. And if that statement is relative, it's not true. Since it's not true, and that would be an absolute then, then all things are not relative. See, if a statement is relative, then it's not binding, so all things cannot be relative. So and again, when you talk to an individual, maybe, maybe some kid who's in college, they can sound really smart, and we don't know how to respond. And I just... Calm down, take a big breath, think about what they just said, and then ask a question about it. Everything's relative. Really? Are you sure about that? Then that's a relative statement. What does it mean then? It's not binding. It does seem that people want to be self-deceived and will assert contradictory statements to avoid the truth found in Christ. What we need to remember as believers is that is the stance in the heart of the non-believer Non-believers willingly, they often do this, they willingly will will remain or become self-deceived. The motivating factor in that is they don't want to deal with the claims of Christ. They don't want to deal with with the God of the Bible. That is what the scripture teaches. Many of us have friends that are non-believers. Sometimes we've had friends that we've had for years and years and years and years that are non-believers. And they may be, when I say nice people, what I mean by that is they're relatively nice people. Remember, they have a sin nature like any, everybody else. They are unsaved, which does mean that they are God-haters. Now, we sometimes, have, we sometimes have a hard time with that because we keep thinking of the nice individual that we know. Remember that someone who's a God-hater is not someone who's always walking around angry and always trying to find ways to um, deny God. But they just deny God in, in every moment of their existence. They've, they've, you know, they, live, they, live, they live their lives without it. They just put them on the back burner, ah, talk about it later. 
not a big deal. But the only one who can do that, the only one who does that, is someone who hates God. Again, that's what the Bible tells us. That's what the Bible declares. And so that has to be our evaluation of our friend. That doesn't mean that you hate them. You should, have, you should love them. You should have a great concern for them. But you have to realize that when they die, they are going to go to hell. We have to, sometimes I think we have to remind ourselves of that. And we need to pray for them and ask God to, to give us opportunities to be able to talk to them, to find ways to present the gospel to them, that God would open their eyes, open their heart, that God would use whatever means are necessary to bring them to himself. Because it's not a pleasant ending. And sometimes what happens is when we go to, to the funeral of a friend who's a non-believer, the only way we can get, we can get through that is basically to sit in denial. We just we don't even want to think about where they went. Because they did not make it. Unless there were some deathbed confession, which there's very few of those. They do exist, but there's very few of those. They did not make it to heaven. Period. They are in hell for all of eternity. And we need to be, remind, we need to be reminded of that. And we need to be reminded that those individuals chose to live the way they lived and they chose to believe the way they believed. Because the Bible does make it clear that everyone does know for a fact that God exists. That's how we know there's really no such thing as a real atheist. They don't exist. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They're not atheists. And we need to remember that. But they refuse to believe that. They don't want to acknowledge that. We've pointed out before, when you look at the life of Christ and study the life of Christ through the Gospels, what you will see is when it came to the Jews as a nation rejecting him, there was no rejecting Christ because there weren't enough evidences or signs that he was the Messiah. They didn't want him to be the Messiah. They didn't want him to be the one. The things that he said, the things that he taught, they didn't want him to be the one. That's what it was. There was no ignorance that was there. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 9 says, The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and trapped, since they have rejected the word of the Lord. What kind of wisdom do they have? It makes it making it clear here that they're going to be trapped in their own uh, foolishness. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says, See to it that no one carries you off as spoil, or makes you yourselves captive by his so-called philosophy and intellectualism, and vain deceit, idle fancies, and plain nonsense, following human tradition, men's ideas of the material rather than the spiritual world, just crude notions flowing, following the rudimentary and elementary teachings of the universe, and disregarding the teaching of Christ. Sometimes individuals will say this. Some people, you know, when it comes to... Uh, looking at life and looking at maybe some of the wicked things that people desire. Not necessarily criminal things, but let's just say wicked things. Uh, and we're trying to find ways to maybe not pass judgment or to appear to be kind of broad-minded or, or open-minded. People will say this, well, all I know is everyone's opinion is equally valid. And then all we have to say is, well, my opinion is, uh, my answer is that my opinion, that your opinion, my, my opinion is that your opinion is wrong. So your view is false. The moment an individual says that everyone's opinion is equally valid, you just say, well, my opinion on that is wrong. Is my opinion equally valid? If it's equally valid, then we've said nothing. That's just foolishness. We need to understand that skepticism and every non-Christian assertion will always self-destruct. We need to remember that as believers. Again, it's not a statement of arrogance. Right? We're not running around bragging and letting people know that we're better than they are. 
We're not trying to say we're smarter than everyone else. We're just simply studying and looking at what the world teaches, looking at what the religions say, and what individuals have come to understand clearly is that those who are skeptics of Christianity, every single non-Christian assertion is always going to self-destruct. If you want to be a rational person, you must be a Christian. And that's why you will sometimes hear individuals say that for a majority of the life of our country, what many non-believers have done is they have borrowed from Christianity. They borrow our foundations for wisdom. They borrow our foundations for having knowledge. In other words, they, they, they're going to act as if there really is a God of the Bible, but deny him the whole time. They, they, want, to, they want to glean you know, whether they can from that, but, but they don't want to bow before him in reverence. So again, if you want to be rational, you must be a Christian because it's the only way you can account for the preconditions of, intellig- of the intelligibility of reason. We don't have to go around and refute every non-believer's errant proposition or statement. It will refute itself. It will destroy itself. If their proposition contradicts the Bible, it commits philosophical suicide. There are internal inconsistencies in all non-Christian systems of thought or philosophy. They are riddled with self-contradictions. They are self-defeating and self-voiding. For example, some would say this. Some would say that you cannot be married to any idea. So we should just ask, are you married to that idea? Remember that the Christian faith has total certainty. We must demonstrate that the unbeliever has total uncertainty. Now, I came across this in a book, so I had to look this up to see if this book really does exist, and it does. There's a book that's entitled this, How to Believe in Nothing and Set Yourself Free. So I guess you just ask the question, is that what you believe? (laughs) If you believe that, then you don't believe in nothing. We've already added one thing that you believe. Do you believe it's true? Oh, now that's two things you believe. So we can't say that you believe in nothing. Again, very commonly heard, some people say, well, I can't believe in anything that I cannot see or feel. See or feel. So just ask them, can you see or feel the, the point of that statement? There's nothing to view there. Again, what we need to remember, though, again, is this. These statements cannot go unchallenged. We cannot allow these statements to go unchallenged. They are universal statements. And the moment you say, well, well, you might be right, or the moment you say, well, you have a point, you have denied truth, and you've also come pretty close to denying the God of the Bible because these aren't true. If these are true, then what is the Bible? If everything is relative, then what's the Bible? It's relative. It's false. If if everything is reduced to just someone's opinion, then what is the Bible? It's just an an opinion. If you're married to the idea, uh, well, you're married to the idea that the Bible is true, and I'm married to the idea that the Bible is not true. Again, you have nothing. There's nothing there. I have this in your notes because I think it's really fun. I wish I had thought of this because that means I would be brilliant, but I'm not. But sometimes there's individuals, again, who are trying to find ways to justify maybe certain things. And they say, well, you know, this is kind of more of a psychological philosophy thing. And they'll say this, you know, I mean, there's no real wrong needs. I need for that to be wrong. You see, the moment they say that, they, that there's no wrong needs. I even heard an individual say that once there was a guy, he... Um, he was, in, he was in prison. He was, a, he was in there for child molestation. And he said that he liked 13-year-old girls. 
And a shrink had told him years before in counseling that there were no wrong needs. And so he took that as an affirmation that his desire wasn't wrong because in his mind he needed that. The only way he could be happy was to be with, was for him to, to meet a 13-year-old girl and maybe marry her. And, you know, he was in his 30s and all these kinds of things. But the moment someone says that there are no wrong needs, there's a lot of things we can say that, well, that's just, that's just ludicrous. And we can go through a long list of things that would be criminal that somebody says that they need and say, well, that, that's just that's, that's wrong. But again, you're only stuck with your opinion and their opinion. And so you have to say, is, well, I just need for that to be wrong. The moment you say you need for that to be wrong, they're going to say, well, you can't say that. That's wrong. Well, you just said there's no wrong needs. It's self-refuting. Some individuals will say all knowledge begins with experience. Did you experience that? Some will say, I only believe in science and the scientific method. Ask if that statement is scientifically testable. Because it's not. Some people will even say something like this. Truth does not consist of words, propositions, or assertions that can be communicated by language. Ask them, are those words or assertions you just made communicated by language? Because they just used words to explain to you their position. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 19 and 20 says, For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God, for it is written, He catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. You see, again, when these statements are made, many times, where individuals may only be repeating what they've heard, but oftentimes these things are being said by people, academics, individuals that are teaching college, individuals in, in positions of power, individuals in positions of influence. They think these are very wise and smart things. They think these things are brilliant. Again, they're trying to find ways to get out from the absolutes of the presence of, of the God of the Bible who exists. Some individuals will, will, will brag, we have no rules. Is that your rule? It just, it just doesn't end. Some, some have, I, I've read this, I'm not really big into mathematics, you can ask Nepo that, he'll tell you that, um, but I have read that apart from mathematics, we can know nothing for sure. So is that a, a mathematical equation? Because you just stated you know that for sure, that's not a mathematical equation. So then you've just provided by what you said, the very basis needed to reject what you said. Some may say, well, all I believe in are the laws of logic. Is that statement a law of logic? Because it's not. Lastly, this was in a Hallmark store. It could be any store that sells cards. It was a multi-pack of Valentine's cards. Six or eight or twelve. The message in all of them was the same. I love you only. <laughs> Do not let your wife see you buying a pack of those. Christianity, again, is the only system of thought that is self-consistent. All non-Christian thoughts or systems are self-contradicting, inconsistent, and self-nullifying. In other words, what we believe is that apart from God, man knows nothing. God has revealed himself to us. He's given us knowledge. He has created us in his image. That is the basis, not just for life. That is the basis for everything. And when man is separated from God because of his sin, it's not that man suddenly is no longer in the image of God. He is. And he's able to function based on these things that God has given us in creation. And we're able to live our lives as if God does exist. But all the while, we're just refusing to acknowledge what we know to be true. 
And every single individual we know that's a non-believer, that is where they are. When you talk to any non-believer, what you know for a fact is they do know that God exists. We, just helped, we, we need to come along and help reveal that to them. Show them the foolishness of what they believe in, whatever it happens to be. Whatever they say they believe in, all you have to ask them is how they know that's true. That's why so, and we mentioned before, why so many people get so angry at Christians. They hate that question. When it comes to any individual that you know who says, well, all I know, I found peace through Buddhism. I found, I've talked to individuals before who said they, they've lost some family member and they're going through a great struggle and they're trying to find a way to, to have peace. And they'll say, well, I, I've, I found peace through, through Buddhism. He says, really, you have? They go, yeah, is that true? They go, is what true? I go, is Buddhism true? And of course, sometimes what will happen is people say, well, I, I, I don't know. All I know is that it helped me. Well, that would be ridiculous. That's ridiculous. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever heard this before. Um, maybe, you, I'm sure you have. Where someone says, uh, you know, they, um, their hand hurts. You say, well, if I stomp on your feet and make the pain on your hand go away, that's because all you're going to be aware of is the pain on your feet because I stomp on it. It just doesn't make any sense. It, you know, people go, ha, ha, you know, that's not funny. But the point is, is that it, it can be a dangerous thing if you begin to ratchet up the, the consequences or whatever's going on. In other words, some individuals may find, you know, some of these, uh, you know, there's a lot of individuals pushing new kinds of drugs that are supposed to help people dealing with various diseases. And sometimes people would get very desperate because of uh, the conventional means or things that are approved aren't working. And individuals will prey on that. So some will say, well, this medicine, we're not sure what the consequences are, or it seems that the side effects can be very, very dangerous. And there are individuals who are willing to, to go in that direction. In fact, if you back it up away from those who are sick, um, when it comes into the world of, of strength training and guys that are in bodybuilding, there's a large number of individuals who have stated that if that they are willing to take, let's say, steroids so they can get the body they want, knowing that it might take 10 or 20 years off their life. And they're willing to do that. That's where the non-believer is. Except the problem is, is that they're, in a sense, willing to chance going to hell by rejecting the God of the Bible to remain where they are. That's just foolishness. And we need to help them see that. There's a book written back in the 1980s, written, written by a professor from the University of Chicago, Alan Bloom. It's called The Closing of the American Mind. And uh, he was very troubled by what he saw when it, when it came to incoming students. He's not a believer. As far as I know, you know I haven't really researched it. I think he's dead now. I don't think he ever became a believer, but he was a very uh, intellectual individual, very smart. And he says this. He says, almost every student entering the university believes or says they believe that truth is relative. It seems that when someone says something they know isn't true, they don't want to admit it because they do not want to be tough-minded and think through life's most important issues. And that's where a lot of individuals are. A lot of individuals may not say they believe all truth is relative, but many individuals will live their life as if all things or all truth is relative. And we don't always know the motivating factor behind that, but in some cases, maybe in many cases, it's because they don't want to be tough-minded. They don't want to think through the tough issues. They don't want to deal with the questions. They definitely don't want to deal with the answers and what those answers might mean. I think I told you the story once briefly about a man who was uh, on trial in Hawaii for, for multiple murders, uh, they believed that he was the head, or at least one of the head uh, honchos in, a, in an Asian kind of a syndicate situation. 
Uh, he was facing multiple life terms. Uh, my father um, went in to talk to him once uh, and, and present the gospel to him. They talked for about an hour. Uh, the man, uh, as, as, my, as my, my dad presented the gospel to him, he asked me at the end if he understood what he was saying, what he was communicating, if he understood the gospel. He said he understood uh, all of it. In fact, he explained some of it back to my father. And then my father asked him, he says, would you, would you like to give your life to Christ and ask him to forgive you of your sins? And, and went, through, went through that uh, question with him. And the guy said, no, no, not right now. And so my father said, well, well Why? He said, uh, there's still too many people I need to get. And my dad said, well, but you know you're going to, to prison. You'll be never getting out again. The guy says, that doesn't matter. He says, I'll find a way to make sure it gets taken care of. And then my dad said, so you, and my dad said, you know that most likely that if you do not respond to the call of Christ now, there's a good chance that you never will. Because your heart will continue to grow harder to God and the gospel. And the man said, I'll take that chance. Psalm 5, verse 10 says, Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. Again, it comes down really to this very simple thing. The non-believer does not believe in Christ because they don't want to. It has never, ever been about evidence. Ever. Their presupposition is they don't believe, they don't want to believe, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What we need to acknowledge is the reality of where they are. That is where you and I were until the Lord opened our eyes and in his grace saved us. None of us here became a believer because we figured it out on our own, unassisted from God or maybe even other believers. Every single one of us are here as believers because of God's work in our life. God's work in our life before salvation. God's work in our life at salvation. God's work in our life after salvation. It is about the grace of God. So what you and I are as believers are we are the instruments in the hands of God. God seeks to use us in the lives of stubborn non-believers, which is what they all are. He wants us to be instruments of His grace He wants us to be instruments of his mercy. He wants us to be those who carry with them the message. The message that cuts through all of the foolishness they believe in. The message that they think is foolish. They will laugh at us. They will mock us. Not all of them, but many. But they they will mock us because they think that the message of the cross is foolishness. But all the while, what they refuse to acknowledge or don't realize, that God has already destroyed the wisdom of the wise. What they're holding on to, what they're believing in, is mere foolishness. Psalm 5, again, from the Amplified, reads this way. Hold them guilty, O God. Let them fall by their own designs and counsels. Cast them out because of the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. But let all those who take refuge and put their trust in you rejoice. Let them ever sing and shout for joy, because you make a covering over them and defend them. Let those also who love your name... Be joyful in you and be in high spirits. For you, Lord, will bless the uncompromisingly righteous. 
him who is upright and in right standing with you, as with the shield you will surround him with goodwill and pleasure and favor. If you are one of those individuals who does not believe in Christ, you don't believe in the gospel, you think whatever you think, whether you think it's foolishness or you think it's too simple or you think it's barbaric, that somehow that the God of the Bible, who is just and holy, who holds us accountable for breaking his law, that somehow he wants to offer salvation because he sent his son to take our place and to die in our place. If you think that's foolishness, remember you're the one who's being foolish. Because you cannot live consistently according to whatever philosophy you believe in. It is self-refuting. And the only one that is not self-refuting is that message. You can find no mistake. It It is internally consistent no matter how many angles you look at it from. And that is the only hope that you have. It's the only hope that we have. And we've embraced it by God's grace. Again, the same passage from a paraphrase reads, Condemn them, O God. May their own schemes be their downfall. Drive them away because there are many acts of insurrection, for they have rebelled against you. That is man. He is already condemned. Why? Because he has rebelled God. He has has, uh, uh, subverted. He has pushed down. He has pressed. He has diminished the truth of God that he knows to be true. But verse 11 again says, But may all who take shelter in you be happy. May they continually shout for joy. Shelter them so that those who are loyal to you may rejoice. Certainly you reward the godly, Lord. Like a shield, you protect them in your good favor. I want you to know that I stand before you today. I am happy and I am joyful and I am confident that God is watching over me and protects me. Because he is good. And because he is faithful. And we should pray that our joy and our happiness would be such that even when we come in contact with our non-believing friends, perhaps they will ask us, why are you always so joyful? Well, I'm glad you asked. Please don't say, I was born this way. Because you weren't. And ask God to give you wisdom in helping to show them. And Again, we don't want to do this arrogantly. We always want to do this lovingly. But we want to show them the error of their way. Ask them what they believe, why they believe it, how they know it's true. If they proclaim that they're Christians, ask them, how do you know you're a Christian? Because a lot of people in this country, a lot of people in this state, claim that they are believers, but they're not. They may go to church every now and then. That certainly is not evidence of a believer. A believer is one who longs after God. Now, we do that imperfectly, absolutely. But do we long to be with believers? Do we long to hear the word being taught and explained? Do, do, we, do we understand our dependency upon God? If, if that is not true of that individual, that should be a red flag. So we need to find out from them what, it, what makes them a Christian. Do they really believe? How do they know they believe? Those aren't bad questions. They can be penetrating. It might make some people very uncomfortable. But we must be willing to make our dying friends uncomfortable. Because when they take their last breath, it is too late. And what great sorrow we should have when our non-believing friends die. Where the only comfort we will have will be the comfort that comes from God, the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we thank you for your grace, kindness, and love. Father, we thank you that there is No rational challenge to the Christian faith in the universe. 
We thank you, Lord, that there are no true competing points of view. We thank you, Lord, that all of them, in the end, are self-refuting. So that it becomes clear to those who trust in you that what we cling to, what we believe, is absolute and certain in every way. And we pray, Lord, that you would cement that confidence deeply within us. We pray, Father, this morning for those here who may not be believers. And we ask, Father, that you would put a spotlight on the foolishness of whatever they believe. We pray, Lord, that you would help them to, to realize that what they believe, their philosophy of life, does not add up. It, it is not true. It will never be true. It simply can't be true. I pray, Lord, you would help them to realize that whatever they're holding on to is being done because they're standing in rebellion against you. Oh, Father, we pray that you would break their heart. We pray, Lord, that you reveal to them their great rebellion against you and let them see and experience your great love for them that was proven and shown to us manifested to us by you sending your son Christ to save us from our sin. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.